Those of you who listen to our podcast every week know I'm not the handiest person in the popular mechanics office. That would be Roy. But this tip actually comes from my own experience. About a year ago, I decided to make an accent door in my apartment. After sanding and painting the door, I realized the old paint-covered hinges looked awful, so I decided to replace them. I went to the store, bought new hinges of about the same size, and rehung the doors. Only they didn't close quite right. And anyone who's ever successfully hung a door is probably laughing right now because it turns out that anything door-related is really, really hard for a beginner's project. As it turned out, the problem with my door was that the new hinges were skinnier than the old ones in terms of actual thickness, not length or width. In other words, the mortises the hinges sat in were too deep. I needed a shim, and I couldn't find anyone who made shims for a problem like that. The solution, it turned out, were playing cards. I cut a bunch out to the size and shape of the hinge mortise, stuck them in behind the hinge, and tested whether the door would shut. Once I had the right number of playing cards, I glued them together, used an impact driver to screw the hinges in on top of the playing card shim, and shut the door perfectly. Think that tip was cool? This week we have two special guests for you guys, Chris from the YouTube channel Chris Fix and our own automotive editor Ezra Dyer, to listen to common car sounds and give their diagnoses. We also talk to Roy about dead trees and get moving tips from a mover just in time for college moving season. And then we test tortilla chips. Hanging a door is an advanced maneuver, y'all, but you're not alone out there. I'm your host, Jacqueline Detweiler, and this is the most useful podcast ever. We are calling this segment Car Sounds, and we have with us two very special guests today. We have Chris Fix, who is a mechanic who has a YouTube channel with 2.3 million subscribers. The channel is called Chris Fix and is the second largest YouTube automotive channel out there. Welcome, Chris. How you doing? And then we also have Ezra Dyer, who is our very own automotive editor at Popular Mechanics. Hi, Ezra. Hello. So what we're going to do is play you guys some sounds from cars that we found online and have you guys alternate and guess what they are, which I think is an incredible skill. I wouldn't know how to do this if my life depended on it. I'd be like, it sounds bad. Yeah, it sounds like a trip to the mechanic. (laughs) It sounds like I need to bring it to one of you guys. So obviously we got these from online, so whoever put these up has said this is what the problem is. And I'm curious if there's going to be situations where you guys are like, no, that's not. (laughs) This guy has no idea That's not the wheel falling off. That's something completely different. Well, so which one of you guys wants to go first? I do. (laughs) All right, Ezra, you get to go first. Maestro. First sound. Give us the first sound. Okay, well, that chattering noise is the starter, but it's not a problem with the starter. That sounds more like you've got a battery problem. It's not getting enough voltage to really crank over, so when that happens, the starter shatters. Chris, what do you think? I will 100% agree. That's something that a lot of us have heard in the past. That is incredible. That is correct. Yeah. Starter is a pretty mysterious thing to me, in fact. I don't even know what a starter is. I've fixed starters before by climbing under the car and hitting it with a rock because sometimes they get stuck. But that's a top secret high-tech solution there (laughs) that we don't need in this case. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next one. Chris, this one's you. That's a tough one. It's hard for me to hear. It almost sounds like a flat tire or something rumbling on the brakes, something like that. This one, the guy said it was a worn-out serpentine. I would disagree with that because when your serpentine gets worn, it tends to squeal. You would expect a high-pitched squealing. That sounds more like, I mean, maybe it's just uh, a little distorted coming through the speaker, but I would have agreed with what Chris said. It sounds like you're grinding your brake caliper on the rotor or something. That's not what I would expect a serpentine to sound like. Okay, so we we have a brake pad sound. Let's play that, and then maybe you guys can explain the difference in what these two things would sound like. Obviously, it's hard through the speakers, but here's what this person claims is the brake pad sound. That sounds super similar to me. I can hear the squeaking in that one a lot more clearly. I mean, that one makes sense to the brake pad. That sounds like his brakes are worn all the way down to the wear indicator. 
where it lets you know, okay, the brakes are making noise even when you're not pressing on them so that, hey, listen, your brakes are dangerously low. You need to get them replaced soon. That's what that sounds like to me, rubbing against the brake rotor. And the way that you tell that that's what's going on, which Chris highlighted there, is that when you're actually using the brakes, it will stop making the noise. And then when you let off the brakes, the noise returns. Oh, that happened to me one time. Why does that happen? Because it's a wheel bar. It's the way, the way that the pad is designed, so that when it gets low enough, that's how it lets you know that it needs to be gone. Oh, so it's I never knew that. Yeah, cool. We're learning a lot today. Because <laughs> brake noise is such a common issue. I did a whole video on the top five brake noise problems that you have, you know, what they mean, what they could be, and how to prevent them, too. Anything from, like, the wear indicators to not properly greasing the certain contact points on the brakes to, you know, touching the dust shield and causing it to rub against the rotor. All, all sorts of different ways that your brakes commonly make noise. So if you have a brake noise issue, you go watch that and hopefully solve your issue without having to go to a mechanic. I wish I had known that. I just had my brakes done, and it was one of the situations where I went to the mechanic, and he just sort of pointed at my tires and said, look, can't you see the problem here? And I had to nod my head. I either had to be stupid or go along with what he was charging me for. Why, yes, I am a real man, sir. Yeah. That's the other benefit as well. Like, if you don't want to work on your car because you just don't feel confident enough, even after watching the video, at least you get more knowledge about the situation so that you don't have to pretend. You know, you can go in there being confident, which is always a good thing. Well, you can still pretend, fake it till you make it, and never admit that you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the last one we were going to do was a water pump sound, which is another just kind of squeaky sound. Oh, okay. So I think we should go to our, to our, our, final, bonus, one? our final bonus sound. All right, so sound. this is our final bonus sound. <laughs> Any thoughts? <laughs> Sounds like uh, me, me working on a car and not being able to get a bolt undone. <laughs> get a bigger breaker bar. Uh, that is the guys from Car Talk imitating a bad flywheel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've never heard a bad flywheel, honestly. I guess I'll have to accept that's what it sounds like. <laughs> it's probably a little different, I would guess. Do we want the ultimate bonus where Chris can diagnose my Bronco that's suddenly running really badly? Sure. I just want some free help here. <laughs> I guess you're just on your cell phone, right? I'm on my phone, so here we, here we go. And also, it's a diesel. It sounded like a science fiction monster to me. I was going to say, that's, there's a, no way I'd be like, it sounds like a... It's a robot gunning robot. for humanity. <laughs> <laughs> you need to get a trickle charger on that thing, it sounds like. Battery's a little low. That could be. <laughs> Do you use the car often? I hadn't driven it in about it a like week. A and I, said, I fired it up, and it suddenly, it sounds like about half the injectors aren't firing. Yeah. You have to check out if there's a misfire at all. You could actually put a screwdriver, like a long screwdriver, to the injector, to each one, and put your ear to the end of the screwdriver, and you'll hear like a click, 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 and it should be uh, rapid clicking. If you don't hear any clicking, the injector isn't firing. That's like a cool little trick that you could use without any specialized tools. Awesome. I learned something. Hooray. Popular Mechanics facilitating conversations with already car experts and even more car experts. That's what we're here for. Yeah, sorry. That was a deep track right there. But. <laughs> well, thank you guys both for joining us and for coming on the show. You guys are great. Yeah, no problem. All Thanks right, for thank having you. me. Lara's our resident bird expert, but not for the reason you might think, which is getting a bird degree. It's because you've been attacked in the face by birds. Yeah. <laughs> attacked in the face by birds. 
So I don't know if somebody put some kind of like hex on my family or something, but we have had a lot of bird experiences this summer. Family being my parents that live in Pennsylvania, but also me personally being attacked by a bird in the lovely borough of Queens. Amazing. <laughs> so we're glad you survived the bird attack. I did. I live. But also you had some tips based on your family's experience with yes. birds. So my parents' house has become like baby bird central this summer. There was a family of robins that decided to lay their eggs in a wreath on my parents' front porch this spring. Very adorable. And then just last week, I was home and there was a bird that had laid its eggs in a nest on my parents' property. There was a big rainstorm and the next day, we went outside and we found a baby bird on the ground next to the nest. We thought he was dead, but then we went over and looked at him and when we walked over, he like opened his little mouth because he thought we were going to feed him. So Cute, but sad. um, Yes. But we were like, okay, so what do we do with a baby bird? And that's how I figured out these special tips for what to do if you find a baby bird. So the first thing you have to do is you have to determine how old the baby bird is. So baby birds that are very young, and that's what this one was that we found, will have very few feathers or no feathers at all. And they kind of just look like a creepy little chicken wing. Like, just like, <laughs> But they are not a chicken wing. I was going to say, so it wasn't actually like a cute baby bird. No, it wasn't. It was like a little lump of flesh with some fuzz on it and so those baby birds if you find them on the ground you are supposed to pick them up a lot of people think you can't pick up baby birds because other baby animals if you touch them their mothers will abandon them but birds have terrible senses of smell oh that's interesting because i definitely had heard that like if an animal if like a mom smells a human scent then it's right that is true for other animals i think so i don't know about other animals but we looked online at like the fish and wildlife websites and official rules and stuff and you can pick up a baby bird. You're supposed to try to locate the nest. And if you can safely get up to where the nest is, you're supposed to just pick the little guy up and put him right in there. And mom will come back and she probably won't even know that you ever touched him. Hmm. If you can't reach the nest, if it's too high, you're supposed to find a small container, something like a butter container or a Chinese food container, fill it with nest-like materials. So like dry grass, straw, anything that's Spanish moss if you live in the South. There you go. And then you put the little guy in there, or you probably do that last, but you nail it to a tree or put it up high. (laughs) I would do that before putting the bird in, yeah. The nest was in a place where we couldn't quite reach it, but we couldn't nail it to the tree either because that would be too far away. So we got a ladder, then we put a bucket on top of the ladder, and then we put a bowl inside the bucket, and then we put him in there with the leaves and stuff near, you know, like... Oh, so he lived in, in the bucket on top of the ladder. Yes. Wow, this is involved. And it's just so that like the mom will find them? Yeah, because baby birds will make like distress noises or like I'm hungry noises. So if mom is nearby, she'll hear them and she'll go get them. Do they pick them up and bring them back to the initial nest? No. They'll stay in that little nest. Oh, until they can fly Until they can fly, which is why you got to put it up there pretty high so they feel safe so mom doesn't abandon them. And that's why you have to pick up the baby bird and put it in the nest to begin with because they can't pick it up and bring it to the nest, I don't think. So that's what you do if you find like a little chicken wing looking one. (laughs) A little chicken wing looking one. (laughs) What happened to ours is we would check on it and check on it and check on it. And a couple days later, there was a baby bird on the ground in the same place. And we're like, oh gosh, fell out of the nest again. This one, because birds grow so quickly, fluffy, little, like very, very cute, happy 
adorable baby bird. And okay. he's sitting on the ground and he's looking up in the air. And those little fluffy guys, you do not touch and you do not put them back in the nest because baby birds of that age are trying to learn to fly and they will leave the nest on purpose. And if you put it back in its nest, it will likely jump out and that's like another chance for it to hurt itself. So we saw him there. I was like, that's a fledgling. But if you find a fledgling, do not move it. Do not pick it up. Do not take it away. Obviously, like if you pick it up, it's not going to die or anything. But for those, they're supposed to be out on the ground. They're supposed to be learning to explore and take care of themselves. When we found this guy, we could hear mom and dad screeching at us. So they were obviously around and like going to take care of that baby bird. But that one, you just keep your pets away from it. Keep an eye on them. But they're okay. Right. So don't touch them fledglings, even though they're cute and fluffy. Don't touch them fledglings. Are you sad that the version that you intervene with is the chicken wing version and the version you have to leave alone is the cute fledgling version? Yeah. Yeah, he was so cute. He yeah, was that's... so fluffy. You could tell that the mother was upset with him and he was trying very hard to like be still and like look at his mom and try to not attract attention to himself. And like we knew that he was right there, but it was very cute. The more important question is how cute was the bird that attacked your face? <laughs> I don't remember. If you were able to see it through your arms and hands covering your eyes. Yeah. I was walking through Queens and a tan colored bird flew at my head multiple times and then I had to run away. So if you're in Queens, there is a potentially rabid tan colored bird. Yeah. Watch out. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Everyone's favorite special guest, Roy, is back in the podcast office today. This is kind of a serious thing. We were talking the other day about storms. So there was a big storm in the office, and obviously there's no trees in Manhattan that are likely to fall on the 23rd floor of this enormous skyscraper. We were talking about if you have a house and you've got a tree in the front yard, how do you know if you're in danger of that tree falling on your house? Is there some way to know whether the tree is healthy? Yeah, lots of ways, lots of things to look for, Jackie. It's an excellent question. If you have a lot of trees on a, let's say it's a small lot with a lot of large trees on it, it may actually pay for the sake of your own safety and the well-being of your house to have the trees evaluated by an arborist. This is a different type of professional, although it's an allied trade to people that do tree service. Tree service companies sometimes are a bunch of guys with trucks and chainsaws. They can handle the difficult jobs associated with typically removing trees or pruning trees. But think of an arborist as a tree doctor, somebody that has certification to evaluate a tree. Now, how do you know if that tree is a danger? Sometimes you can't tell. Sometimes a tree can be outwardly healthy and then simply snap off. Ugh, that's scary. Yeah, no, it can be very scary. There are some other things, though, that homeowners can look for for trouble signs. Start with if parts of the tree are not producing leaves through at least one complete cycle of the year. In most cases, that's going to tell you that you've got a dead limb or there's something otherwise unhealthy going on with the tree. Other things to look for are a lot of insect activity in the tree. Carpenter bees, carpenter ants, wood-boring insects. Termites? That's a pretty good question, and I couldn't answer that. I can tell you that I have never seen a termite infestation in a tree. I've seen carpenter ants. I've seen other powder post beetles and other wood. How do you know all these names? This is crazy. Well, let's see. Exactly. <laughs> so if you see bugs all up in your tree, that's, that's no good. Yeah, well, sometimes it can be harmless. Sometimes harmless ants, not carpenter ants, can simply... What's the difference between a carpenter ant well, and... Well, a carpenter ant is a wood-boring 
ant. It actually bores a hole, chews a hole into the tree and infiltrates it. And there might be like wood dust around on the ground. Okay. Yeah. Now that's one sign, wood dust and other insects such as powder post beetles and still others, many others, in fact. Insect activity is one. Absence of foliage indicates that. You might also actually, without necessarily climbing around in the tree, sometimes you can inspect a tree with binoculars. Sometimes you can inspect it out the window of your house, out the window of your house with binoculars. Simply look at it. You might notice a crack where a branch or a tree can form like a Y shape. That's called a codominant stem. Two stems basically competing, and that joint where the codominant stems meet is a likely failure point, almost like two trees growing out of the same base, you might say. Codominant stems are often trouble points. They collect debris. Animals build nests in them. They're frequent sources of cracks. So you need an arborist really to evaluate those trees. Any tall tree close to the house needs professional care. That's not something a homeowner should attempt to mess with. You can get hurt. You can damage your house. You can cut the tree in a way that you'll actually make it worse. If, say, you've got big trees near your house, how often do you need to have someone come out? Uh, You know what? There isn't an answer to that. I wish there was. If you've never had it done, at the very least, you can call a tree service company that has some sort of arborist certification associated with it or ask them or go to some of these tree care organizations online. And most of them have referrals, contractors that can come to your area. The point is that there are times if you have large branches overhanging your house where even if the whole tree doesn't fall, if a part of the tree falls, it's going to cause significant damage or injury. I've had two instances where trees came apart in my yard, two separate houses, two separate trees. But in both cases, the limb that fell from the tree was in itself the size of a tree. Wow. And in both cases, they both took out fences. Oh, man. This is not like a small thing. It's not like no, your rose no. bush dying. You know, this no, falls no. on something. You got to go fix the other thing. Too. Well, that's exactly right. In one case, it wasn't a big deal, but the limb that fell and wrecked my neighbor's fence fell with enough force that it stuck in the ground like a foot, like a gigantic wow. spear. So obviously, in either case, you know, somebody would have been killed. Right, if that had landed directly on you. And people do. I don't want to make it sound like these trees in your yard are a menace. There's probably other things that are more dangerous in your life, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, like driving in New Jersey, for example. (laughs) But doing a sort of common sense evaluation of your trees is not a bad idea. Look for those warning signs, insect activity, animals building nests in those codominant stems, dead branches, parts of the tree not coming into bud and leafing, you know, producing leaves. Those are all warning signs. Loud creaking noises. And obviously old picturesque trees can be attractive on the outside and have a significant amount of damage going on on the inside. And sometimes it takes an arborist to help really identify what that stuff can be. They know. They look at, on the course of any given year, literally thousands of trees. And they are very good and accurate judges, in my experience, of telling what's going on inside the tree. Right. We're telling people to do here is, like, look for these obvious signs. But when you see that stuff, when it's on the outside of the tree, the damage has already occurred on the inside. Right. So there could be something you don't even see. So trees, get them checked out. Yeah, that's the short answer. Get them checked out.
We couldn't help but notice that everyone in the office lately is moving. Our co-host Kevin is moving and uh, a few other people in the office are moving. It's that time of year, August, which is when everybody is going off to college or just moving around in the city. And we thought that Eleanor would be able to give us some tips on how to do that. So what did you do? You called someone? Yeah. So I talked to Eric Welch, who's the director of operations at the Gentle Giant Moving Company, which is based in Boston. Such a good name for a moving company. an excellent name. And their logo is like two huge, helpful looking feet. (laughs) (laughs) Helpful looking feet. Yeah, you, heard you, it here. you can just tell. But he's been with them for 17 years, so he has a lot of experience. And he gave me some tips. So his first tip was to not move on September 1st, if you can help it at all. He said even one day before or after is better. And if you really do have to move on the first, he said start at 3 a.m. And I don't think that he was joking. I believe it. Is that because of college kids? Especially in Boston, definitely college kids. But I think September 1st is just first of any month, like it's at least turnover day, but it's just going to be more crowded. Right. But in terms of the actual packing, getting ready to move, if you're doing it yourself and you're not going to use a moving company, he had a couple of helpful tips and tricks. So the first thing, use smaller boxes for heavy things. If you're packing books, magazines, canned food, put those in a small box that you'll be able to pick up. I learned that the hard way, man. Oh, did you? Oh, I got a huge box one time. I have a lot of books. I have this big old bookshelf and I put like all my, I was like, here, I'm just going to Hey, knock it out. Put this one box. And then I tried to pick it up and like it was not happening. I had to take them all out and put them in different boxes. Yeah, it's a good way to throw out your back or, you know, you might get halfway down the stairs and then the box rips and then you haven't really saved yourself any time. Right. So that was his first tip. We got a question from someone in the office about what to do with clothes. Do you put them in bags? Do you put them in boxes? Do you use them to wrap your dishes? Which some people might do. He said no. (laughs) No on the dishes. A mixture of bags and boxes is typically good. Bags are helpful because if you're packing up a truck, they can be sort of filled. You can squish them around wherever they fit. But the downside is you can't stack something on top of a bag and it might rip and then you get dirty clothes wherever you're moving. So mix and match some boxes, some bags, sort of just depending on What about uh, taking the drawers out of your dresser and bagging those? Is Mm. that a good idea? Okay. So what Eric said about that was for flat pack furniture, like pressed wood, Ikea type stuff, he actually doesn't recommend taking the drawers out because they're sort of part of the structural integrity of that kind of furniture. So Uh if you take it out you're actually weakening the rest of the structure. And so, you know, it might break in the truck or be harder to put back together when you get where you're going. If you have a nice piece of furniture that's like real wood, then you could take out the drawers. But otherwise, he suggests just leaving the drawers in and taking the clothes out. And it's a bit more of a hassle, but it's less of a hassle than having a broken dresser when you get to your new place. Accurate. Accurate, I would say. Yeah. What about packing hangers? Did he say anything about that? That's so annoying. Oh, I didn't ask about that. You know what I always do is like I take all my hanging clothes and I just roll those up kind of with the hangers in Mm. them and put them in a bag. And I always hope that that'll work. Yeah. I've seen people like have an actual clothes rack and like roll that into their big moving van. That's that's, a good idea. It's a little fancier than I've ever. You have to be fancy. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) What else did he give you? Anything? One good tip on moving furniture. If you're trying to get around through a very narrow doorway around a tight corner, especially in apartment buildings in New York or Boston or big cities like that. He said, first, remove anything that you can possibly take off furniture. You know, some chairs, if it's a recliner, you can take the back off of it. Some sofas, you can remove the legs, sort of get it down to its barest pieces and then think of the negative space. So if you have a table with its legs still on, think of that like hollow in between the legs as you can maneuver that around a doorway. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of like shift it through the door without going straight through. Right. Do you know what's another good tip in that sense? I'm not a mover, I should clarify. But I did have to move a couch that just barely Mm. fit into an apartment. And what the movers did, which was crazy, is they tilted it up on its side and sent it through vertically, which I never even thought about that like, you know, it may not fit sideways, you're trying to wedge it, it's got a corner. But if the 
door is taller than the couch is long, you can get it in vertically. True. Like, just yeah. send it in on its arm. You're going to need a very strong friend. You are yeah. going to need a very strong friend, but then you can do that. That is an option. Good. Oh, this was my favorite tip. I have to share this. Packing plates. Don't put them, like, face down in a stack like you normally would. He said put them on their end like you would in a dishwasher because otherwise there's too much pressure on the bottom plates and they're going to break. He also recommended packing them with packing paper, so sort of like newspaper but without the ink on it, uh, which I guess you can buy at, like, U-Haul or or any of those places. Or you could support the New York Times. (laughs) You and could do that. Uh, the Wall Street Journal and other uh, journalistic enterprises. <laughs> you might end up with ink on your plates, but... <laughs> that is possible. You know, you could wash you your know, plates. You saving journalism at the same time. Journalism is important. Small price to pay. It's sort of hard to describe how to roll them up properly, but they had some YouTube tutorials, and, or you could just find a mover and ask them. That's a great tip. Thank you so much for doing that. My pleasure. It's time again for your favorite segment, Tat Facts. Matt Facts again? No, it's Tat Facts now. Tat facts. Tattoo factus. <laughs> I think we'll stick with tat facts. Tat facts, yeah. yeah. The reason we're doing tat facts is because I just got a new tattoo, which is very small. What is it? What does it look like? It says hi, y'all, in tiny little script. It's about an inch So it's the very first quarter. moop tattoo. It's kind of a moop tattoo. Yeah. yeah, I do say hi, y'all, on this podcast. So here are your tat facts. First of all, because prison tattooing is illegal... Prison tattoo artists make their tattoo guns out of motors, such as those from a CD player, attached to an empty pen barrel, which is itself attached to a needle made out of a staple or a stretched out spring. They make the ink out of melted checkers, pieces of shoe, or better, the soot from burnt baby oil. Wow. Shouldn't there be like some Silicon Valley startup that's like hiring... For prison tattoos? No, hiring prisoners because they're innovative. Like and, and it gives them jobs that like looks good to the world. They're helping yeah. the world, which they always want to do anyway. But you'd have to pick the You'd got to get the, good, the, the reform guys. Ones. Oh, the ones who know how to burn baby oil. Next hat fact. According to a recent study by researchers at Alma College in Alma, Michigan, tattooed skin sweats differently than non-tattooed skin, which could be important for athletes with large chest or back pieces or sleeves, of which there are many that seem to play basketball and football. The researchers applied a chemical that makes you sweat and then absorb the resulting perspiration. They found that tattooed skin produces half as much sweat as regular skin, and sweat from tattooed skin has twice as much sodium in it. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? They don't know. Well, they don't know. You want to sweat, though, because it cools your body. But there is evidence from studies of burn victims that the rest of your body can compensate. So they don't know whether it's good or bad yet, but they think that it's due to leftover inflammatory cells from the healing process. Here's my question, because we know that professional athletes will try like any crazy thing to get an advantage. I wonder if they discovered that like, no, you can't perspire as well with your tattoos if like NBA players would stop getting tattoos. Would stop getting tattoos. I doubt it. Or the other way, if you find out it's better than just full body sleeve. It's a fight between being cool and being good at a sport. That's a really tough one. Yeah, and if you're already good enough, what's the tattoo yeah. going to do? Right. LeBron James with three more tattoos, probably not better or worse. I could take him. Just give him a sleeve, I'll get him. That's the third tat fact. <laughs> Jackie with a tattoo could take LeBron James. Yeah. Well, actually, our last tat fact, officially it's a rumor, but it's a fairly well-substantiated rumor that <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt had his family crest tattooed on his chest. Wow. I'd believe that. I would, too. I don't. Oh, come on. Teddy Roosevelt? Yeah, come on. He was the crazy one. That doesn't mean he got a tattoo. According to ABC News, President Theodore Roosevelt had his family crest tattooed on his chest. This week's testing table is packed full of people because it's a really exciting one. We are testing tortilla chips. We have how many different kinds of tortilla chips have we got? We have five different (laughs) kinds of tortilla chips. chips, but we have six different kinds of chips because somebody brought a bag of pita chips. Do you want to explain yourself, Peter? It's bringing life to a gunfight, man. We were told to pick our favorite chips. Jackie got to pick my favorite chip before I got to. And then I went to the store and I thought, there's no better chip than a pita. 
And so, so. He, ch- he brought Stacy's pita chips to a tortilla chip. Oh, battle. to a chip contest. Nobody specified tortilla when we talked before. So let's explain how this works. We're each going to try one of the chips individually and also in salsa and in queso to see how their dip properties work. And I, sh- I would just argue that salsa and queso, I mean, you should know. It might be from disgusting that. on a pita chip. But according to Stacy, who wrote the back of this bag, enjoy them straight from the bag with your favorite dip. <laughs> My favorite dip might be queso. Stacy just endorsed this as a dipping chip. Okay. Let's start by doing everybody's individual favorite chip. Kevin, do you want to start with yours? Yeah. Well, Aww. do we really care what Kevin's favorite chip is? Because it's not here. I had a chip called Snyder's of Hanover, or that's the brand. Which is a great pretzel brand. Which is brand. the pretzel company. Yes. And I think that's how this whole thing started, is that I had it, and it was amazing, and I was shocked, especially because Snyder's of Hanover does not sound like a great tortilla chip name, but <laughs> I couldn't find them. So... In desperation, I went to four grocery stores, and at the last one, when I was at my lowest, I just grabbed this off the shelf. It's called Tortilleria Mi Nina. Ooh. It was at Whole Foods, and it's non-GMO. I don't know if that so helps probably the that's taste available in most places. But uh, it is true. Snyder's of Hanover are going to be our kind of brigadoon mystical chips that one day we'll try. Yeah. Someday. All right, so let's try these Mi Nino. Mi Ninas? Mi. Mi Nina. Mi Ninas. That's my girl. <laughs> my girl chips. On the back, it says it's like from their grandmother shipped them in, so probably their grandmother just called them Meninia. Oh, it's not. It has nothing. It's not an honor of the movie. We should just say our salsa we've chosen. This is my one of my favorite salsas is Green Mountain Gringo. It's really a good a jarred salsa. And then the queso is just a, a standard sort of queso. Did you choose the Meninias because they look similar to your Snyder chips, or you just thought they were good looking? No, they seem like they might be good. Could use a little more salt, I yeah, think. Yeah, I like them to be really salty. This is not nearly salty enough, which is one of the strengths of Snyder's. It's a good texture, though. It's like my white whale. I'm so How's sad. How's it doing on the queso? It did great. Good. I'm going to try it in the salsa. Holding oh. up, I picked up a, that's a fairly a large, scoop. that's like a generous, what is that, like a square inch of, <laughs> of salsa. <laughs> I really like the crunchiness, but it does need more salt. Mm-hmm. Okay, next chip? Next chip. Okay. Yeah, so- Larry's next. What's your favorite chip? This is a controversial style of a conventional chip. It's a Tostito scoop, but I really like the multigrain ones because I think that they hold up better when you dip them into stuff. Yeah, multigrain. Tostito scoops, I definitely think whoever invented that like, is, should probably be living on an island somewhere right it's now. It's a great idea. It, it, I mean, it's brilliant. That but they, they do really sometimes good. lose a little flavor to that shape. I wonder how they make that shape. They're super salty. Yeah, one thing Tostitos does have going for it is it's got solid salt. I actually like that multigrain. Do they? No? No way. Wait. Really? No, it feels like a flat flavor. Regular Tostitos. I agree. It's not so it's good. Not the same. You're losing so much in the multigrain. I'm not happy. Yeah, it tastes kind of like a cracker. But I stand by it. Tastes pretty good with dip on it. Yeah. Here's the thing: you're not really going to eat a scoop without dip, are you? I think I like the texture of them. It's like a thicker, more like a Frito mm, texture, mm-hmm. I would say, than like a typical, like a solid corn chip versus tortilla chip. Right. It's kind of got the corn chip thickness to me. Wait, I have to go back to this. This is going to be controversial. Because I like things that are really crunchy and salty, I do eat a healthy proportion of my chips dipless, even if there's dip around. Unless it's like guacamole, in which case I probably have guac every time. Right. But so I actually do think it's important that it's still good, even if you don't have dip in it. Does anybody well, else agree? I would agree with you Especially on that. Especially with our next chip, the Tostitos Hint of Lime. Tostitos Hint of Lime, I think, I think this is a good, uh, a good segue into the Tostitos Hint of Lime. That's what's good about them. They also have jalapeno ones, which I had for the first time this weekend, which were pretty good. 
partially if you're eating like really, really hot salsa, sometimes you need to eat a few plain chips to try to get your mouth back into a state that's sustainable. The one problem I have with Tostitos Hint of Lime is the lime flavor is the same artificial lime flavor in like runts and like candies and Skittles. Like you can taste that it's the same lime flavor despite the fact that it's salty and it makes me a little crazy. I'm actually not a huge fan of Hint of Lime. They're fine. Like I don't dislike them, but I would take plain, no flavor just lots of salt. Over. I was a huge fan until I ate this chip. My memories are really misleading me. The hint of lime with the queso is absolutely terrible. It's no good with the salsa either. It tastes like you ate a Skittle with Velveeta. Oh, these are no good with dips. No, terrible. Ugh. Right, I think go. that I usually only ever eat these after I've had a few beers. I think that's probably like <laughs> why. with a Corona. Then mm-hmm. It's, yeah. mm-hmm. let's go blue. Okay, next we're going to a blue corn chip. We went with a standard Tostitos blue corn. Simply organic. Simply organic Tostitos blue corn. This salsa is the best, by the way. This should be a salsa. The salsa podcast. is so good. See? Yeah, Green Mountain Gringo salsas. Like, is just that available gen- anywhere? Everywhere? Um, yeah, I think so. I'm- you got it at Sea Town. I got it at Sea Town, <laughs> which is a pretty regular store. Lara hates it. I like it. There's no salt. There's not a lot of salt, but it's a perfect delivery vehicle. It tastes like sad cardboard to me. It's good with the cheese like on it. Maybe. It held the cheese really well. Yeah. Everything's good with cheese on it. You're right, though. There's no salt. No crispiness. No salt. I mean, it's crispy, but I went with Sochiels, which are also Peter's favorite. Right, we uh, went with Sochiels. So well, you, Peter you, went, with you went with pita chips. Sochiels. So bring the same thing. Are great, great chips. You have to make sure, though, that you get the ones that say sea salt. Because the ones that say no salt, it's kind of small. These are terrible. Which ones are those lime. that you say are terrible? The lime? <laughs> Peter keeps going back to the hint of lime and eating them and being like, this is disgusting. <laughs> oh, disgusting. <laughs> and then he eats more. <laughs> All right. I so really chills. don't like the blue. They're like cardboard. So the Sochiels, the thing about Sochiels is they are a little skinny. But they're holding up well in the queso. Is this your first Sochil experience? I think this is mine, too. I tried to scoop some salsa, and my Sochil chip broke in half. That is the only problem with Sochils, is they do not... like tissue paper. Uh Uh-uh. She doesn't like them. Not with salsa. When you put salsa on it, it does what a tissue does when you get it wet. It just, like, turns floppy, and you, like... I don't like that at all. It is weird, actually. Right. After it's eating all these different tortilla chips, you really see that they're very different. This is so you know what that calls for? A pita chip. Oh, <laughs> Not on. a tortilla chip at all. Have any of these been salty enough for everyone? All these are below my preferred salt. This was a mistake. <laughs> You're eating the pita chip and it's... With in, cheese? And how is, how is that? <laughs> yeah. Stacey should stick to hummus. I didn't even do it. I'm not doing it. Everyone's face is... No, somebody try a pita and the salsa, though. I did. I liked it. It's okay. Wait. The cheese I didn't like at all. The cheese on this, Stacey, brings out some weird... Yeah, it's a big mistake. Okay, so all let's right, go so around. Favorites? What is everyone's favorite? I think I like the Sochil the most. I actually like the Minion, yeah. I'm not as sad as I was when I came in here about my own choice. But I do wish they were a little saltier, and I wish they stood up better to that. I wish they were a little bit thicker. Yeah. Lara? Uh, I don't know if I was like particularly passionate about any of them. I like my multigrain scoops. I think they are a different thing. They're like halfway between pita chips and tortilla chips. Right. Peter. They're like a subset of a tortilla chip. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about these. Maybe I just like the Minina because they're kind of like a classic sturdy chip. Yeah. The Sochil, I just can't get over how floppy it gets when you put it in the salsa. Okay. All right, Peter, what's your favorite? Don't say pita chips. Pita chips with no cheese or salsa. Has, that's been the happiest I've been in eating this was just a, a straight pita chip. But Kevin's Sochil replacement chip. I think Minina. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I still think I'm I'm on the Sochil bandwagon, but Minina really grew on me. I'm impressed with that chip that I've never heard of. So if you're near a Whole Foods or you are able to find Mininas, those are pretty good chips, and so are Sochils. Should we eat more chips? Yeah. Okay. 
That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about birds, cars, moving, and trees, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.